have a rendezvous with death at some disputed barricade when the spring comes back with rustling shade and apple blossoms fill the air. I have a rendezvous with death when spring brings back blue days and fair. It may be he shall take my hand and lead me into his dark land and close my eyes and quench my breath. It may be I shall pass him still. I have a rendezvous with death on some scarred slope of battered hill. When spring comes north again next year and first metal flowers appear. God knows it were better to be pillowed deep and scented down. Pulse night a pulse and breath to breath. Where love throbs out in blissful sleep and hushed awakenings are dear. But I have a rendezvous with death at midnight in some flaming town. When spring trips north again next year. And I have to my pledge word and truth. Welcome back to Over the Top, a Great War podcast. That was a bone-chilling version of a poem by Alan Seeger, and I'll be getting to him shortly on this episode. All right, folks, it's, I don't even know what the date is. Was it the 20th or the 21st of April? It's Monday. I know that. And this quarantine thing is still going on. I hope everyone is doing well and in good health, and not going crazy staying home. For some people, I know this can be challenging, the whole social distancing and only leaving the house for essentials. And for some married couples, let's face it, being around each other nonstop might also be a challenge. My wife and I, on our regular schedule, we don't see a lot of each other during the week. I'm up really early for work. By the time I come home, she's at work. We see each other for a little bit in the evening and then repeat the process until the weekend. And now she's here all the time. The only one who's completely loving this situation is our English bulldog. He loves having the both of us home 24-7. My little podcast studio, which I call Le Studio, aka a corner in my room, a very small corner. It's right next to our patio sliding door and I have an excellent view of a group of palm trees. It's a group of about 20 palm trees. I'm going to say around, I don't know, 75 feet tall or, or something like that. They're huge. In fact, when the wind picks up, it looks like some of them might snap, but they don't. Anyways, it's been raining for the past few weeks, but it stopped and the clear skies almost smog free with those palm trees. It just looks amazing out. Fall is my favorite time of year, but lately I've been anxious for summer to arrive. Dog beach with cold beers, pool with more more cold beers, patio with the wife and more cold beers, the warm air. I mean, who am I? Being cooped up in this house has, has me acting all weird, all sensitive. I'm appreciating the palm trees and summer more and more. But hang in there, folks. Hopefully this will be over soon, wherever you're living. In this episode, we're going back to Belgium to the First Battle of Ypres, and then we'll finish off the winter of 1914. I guess I could have done the Battle of Ypres with this episode. Not sure why I didn't, but eh, it worked out for the good. But before we get into that, let's talk about something important. 
something very near and dear to my heart. And that's what I'm drinking for this episode. For this episode, I'm drinking Newcastle Brown Ale. Because folks, we're still getting dirty on the Western Front. At one time, Newcastle was said to be the most unhealthiest beer you can drink. Good news though, they since have reformulated the liquid and it's healthier. I'll say that. Still good. And let's be honest, by now, I probably sound like the person with a bit of a drinking problem. Someone who likes to sip on grandpa's old medicine. And I do, but I'm not. I just enjoy a drink from time to time, especially when I'm podcasting or sitting in the hot sun. And I'm not drinking to get healthy. If I want to get healthy, I'll probably just put the beer and liquor down and drink something like kale water or mulched up moss water mixed with some berries or something of the sort. Something healthy. But the store is out of kale and toilet paper, which go hand in hand. So beer it is for this episode. And if there's any youngsters listening to the show, ignore all that. Drink the kale water and stay healthy. Alcohol is bad. All right. Just like he said. All right, enough about that. You know why we're here. On the last episode, I talked about the Germans seizing the port city of Antwerp and driving what remained of the Belgian army back to the Eastern Canals. There, under desperation to not let it fall into the hands of the enemy, Belgian King Albert opened the canals and flooded the area, forcing the Huns back to Ypres, where they would again beat the BEF and the French. And that's where we stopped at Ypres. On the Eastern Front, the Battle of Warsaw began, but quickly ended. The Germans and Austrians were outnumbered almost three to one. The roads nearly impassable from torrential rains made it impossible for the Huns to move supply wagons to the Vistula and to Warsaw. By the 17th of October, Team Hind and Lue decided they must withdraw the German 9th or it would completely be destroyed. The Germans retreated 60 miles in six days and lost 40,000 men. Overall, for the Battle of Warsaw, the Germans took 100,000 casualties, with 60,000 of them killed, and the Austrians between 40 and 50,000 dead. Death. That word, death. Death comes in many forms. People often fictionalize death in the form of the Grim Reaper, swinging its scythe, taking its victims. Or for some, it's a malevolent being in a black cloak that stalks its victims, ripping away their souls. I like the version where death is a beautiful woman, a damsel in distress seeking a young man to take her away, away from this mortal life. And once you take her hand, she's taking you to the other side with her. And for these soldiers, she, as in death, came in many forms. The form of a bullet, shrapnel from an artillery shell, a bayonet, and sometimes just from Mother Nature's wrath, like drowning, or freezing to death, or trench foot. She could be in many places at one time, dancing her way through the fronts like a cold wind gusting across the land. The kind of wind chill you feel down to your bones. (laughs) Claiming our youth our sons, even husbands, fathers, and often the innocent. And the death numbers continue to stack up as winter approached in 1914 to an amount which some leaders should have called a timeout and assessed the situation. But is there a limit to death in war? Will there ever be? Even today, 
It's only by today's standards we've adapted, learned from previous wars to protect ourselves more. But would leaders today call a halt if we passed a million lives lost in battle even after 9-11? French Corporal Louis Barthas was arriving at the killing fields during the autumn of 1914. He departed from the town of Narbonne, a southern French town closer to Barcelona than Paris. His wife and six-year-old son were determined to be with him until the last minute of his departure. Barthos describes his departure in his diary, saying, quote, Here we are at the fatal hour. The bugle calls us to assembly. I kiss my loved ones a final time. I clasp them to my heart, and I ask my wife to leave, to disappear. Do not come see me off at the station, since that would wipe out whatever little bit of courage I had left, I told her. Two over come to answer me. She goes away slowly, pulling by the arm. My child, who seems to understand the gravity of the separation, lets out a heart-rendering cry. Papa! How this cry from my own flesh and blood, this cry of nature, bowled me over. Poor little one. Will I ever see you again? I asked myself, breaking up. But I had to pull myself together. You couldn't march across town with your eyes full of tears like a crybaby. End quote. Keep in mind, Barthas was a socialist, as many people were back during that time. Remember, there was the Industrial Revolution. Machines were taking over. Men were fighting for jobs along with decent wages. Jean Jaurès was a member of the French Parliament and the leader of the Socialist Party in France before the war. He was assassinated on the 31st of July at Café du Croissant in the 2nd arrondissement in Paris. Jaurès spoke out against the coming war and tried to use diplomacy to prevent it. Some believe, without a doubt, this was the cause of his assassination. Hmm. Let's see. Technology replacing jobs, people fighting for equal rights and equal pay. Can history be repeating itself? And because Bartas was a socialist, natural, he was anti-war. But still, even a man who opposed something so strongly walked tall with his head high to represent his country. Barthas did love his country. And the attitudes from the families, seeing their loved ones going off to fight, seemed to have changed at this point. There were no more flowers and kisses being thrown with joyous bravos. Instead, there were looks of concern that this was no longer going to be a short war. And more importantly, their loved ones might not make it home. Newspapers were not only reporting the dead, they were also reporting France had just been invaded. And I'm sure nobody in their right mind will sit back with smiles if their country had just been invaded. On the 9th of November, Barthas arrived in the town of Barlin. Not Berlin, but Barlin, a town north of Arras and south of Ypres. After getting off the train, he read a sign that read, Death to Wilhelm. On to Berlin. On to Berlin. He described his arrival, saying, quote, It was at Barlin that I heard for the first time the sound of cannons at the front. I turned my head in that direction, instinctively, like a beast turns towards when it senses danger. Then we headed out, and around noon we reached New Le Minet. In air, we were supposed to be with the rest of the 280th Infantry Regiment in a village called Anequin. Finally, completely worn out with fatigue, we arrived in the dark of the night. They led us into the schoolroom where we immediately bedded down on a bit of damp straw. During the night, we were shaken awake by nearby explosions which rattled the schoolhouse. We were frightened by all this racket, 
but there was no reason to be because it came from a battery of our own 75s which had moved up near the school to fire a few shells. The German counter-batteries responded with several timed fuse shells of their own, and the shrapnel from them splattered on the roof like hailstones, breaking some of the tiles. Some of us fled, terrified, out into the dark of night. Others crawled and burrowed under benches and tables piled up in a corner of the schoolroom." End quote. Barthas knew his last train stop was in hell, a hell created by his fellow man. And here's a little food for thought. And by now, you know my food for thoughts are just my opinion, so take it with a grain of salt. Barthas read the sign that read Death to Wilhelm when he arrived in Berlin. I wonder if the people or person who put the sign up were aware his country was working hand in hand with Russia, pushing for this war. Everything that I've read points to Russia and their pal France pushing for the war. Wilhelm was like a swimmer being circled by sharks ready to attack. He had a choice, fight back or sit there and let them devour you. And because he fought back, people were calling for his head on a stick. Would those people have reacted the same if the Germans didn't attack and they let Russia and France invade her and take her over? Would they still be screaming for death? Just a little food for thought. Another individual just getting to the front was American poet Alan Seeger. Living in Paris when the war broke out, for the love of France, he volunteered for the French army with the Foreign Legion. I'm going to read a block of writing from his diary when he first arrived at the front, his first experience in the trenches. On an earlier episode, I talked about the whole innocence of youth and how eager most young men were to go fight for their country, the glory of war. I think you'll hear through Seeger's voice how quickly it goes from the glory to not so glorious. Keep in mind, I'm breaking this up and not reading this entirely in its whole, but this should give you the overall picture. Starting with the letter he wrote to his mother on October 23rd, he said, quote, It will surely interest you to get a letter from the front, though I have only time to write a word. I cannot tell you the name of the village where we canton. For reasons of expediency, we are about 17 kilometers southeast of Reims. The Germans have been firing salvos of four shots over a little village where the French batteries are stationed. Shrapnel that burst in little puffs of white smoke. The French reply with explosive shells that raise columns of dust over the German lines. Half our regiment have left already for the trenches. We may go tonight. I am feeling fine, in my element, for I have always thirsted for this kind of thing. To be present always where the pulsations are liveliest. Every minute here is worth a weeks of ordinary experience. The yellow afternoon sunlight is sloping gloriously across the beautiful valley of Champagne. The following is taken from Seeger's diary starting on October 28th from the Aisne. We marched with small and few interruptions from 6.30 in the morning to 10.30 at night, in which time we probably covered about 55 kilometers. No food except the scraps we had in our musettes. We passed over roads that wind along the southern slopes of the valley where Rhymes is situated. Arrived at Fismay after nightfall and exceedingly fatigued. Expected to be Canton there, but kept marching through the town and cut into the dark country again. The cannonade that had been very violent all afternoon grew louder as we advanced northward directly toward the line. I was given sentry duty immediately on arriving. For 20 minutes or so, the rifle fire was continuous. 
broken every few seconds by the booming artillery, while magnesium lights were shot off from the trenches to light up the battlefield. Earlier, a soldier had been telling me his regiment had made such a charge a couple days ago and it had been practically wiped out, leaving 700 dead on the field. Seeger's Diary from November 4th at the Aisne The Germans up to this time had been content to direct their fire over our heads on the French batteries behind us, began to turn it on our trenches, and formed no doubt by their airplanes that buzzed continually overhead. The salvos of shrapnel began bursting in the woods all about us, and we were compelled to stay under cover all day long. Four days and four nights of this, in which our company lost two killed and nine wounded. Seeger's Diary from November 10th. Fifth day of our second period in the trenches. Five days and nights of pure misery. A big hole here in the pit. A few yards from our door marks the place where three men of Battalion D were killed by a shell only a few days before our arrival. It is a miserable life to be condemned to, shivering in these wretched holes, and the cold, and the dirt, and the semi-darkness. The increasing cold will make this kind of existence almost insupportable, with its accompaniments of vermin and dysentery. And finally, the last part is a small passage from a letter he wrote to his mother on the 17th of November. This experience will teach me the sweetness and worth of the common things in life. The world will be more beautiful to me in consequence. So wait and count on me being with you next summer. End quote. You can see where Seeger had that passion from the start. Then it quickly faded away in the trenches, turning his glory into misery. Sadly, Seeger's life ended at the Battle of the Somme in 1916. His letters and diary from the front are amazing. I'll be quoting Seeger a lot more to come. The poem he was most famous for, which you heard in the opening, was I Have a Rendezvous with Death. Also, if you're in Paris, if you stop at the American Volunteer Memorial, you'll find a statue of Seeger standing watch over Paris. If you're in Paris, the memorial is at the Parc Place de Tatsunis. If you're at the Eiffel Tower, head north, crossing the scenic Pont de Lena Bridge across the Seine River onto Avenue de Nations Unis, which will run into Avenue de Lena, which you'll need to head north on, and the park will be on the left. Super easy. It's about halfway between the Eiffel Tower and the Arc de Triomphe. I'm going to say maybe a 15 to 20 minute walk, depending on how fast your pace is. You'll also walk past the George Washington statue. Pretty cool. All right, let's head over to Belgium to the area known as Flanders Fields, Ypres. And here's a little history on the town before the war. It's known to have been raided by the Romans in the first century BC. It was first mentioned by the name in the year 1066. During the Middle Ages, Ypres was the third largest city in Flanders. The two largest were Ghent and Bruges. Known for its large textile industry, their major export was its linen supply to England. In the year 1241, a major fire destroyed much of the old city. The famous cloth hall was built in the 13th century. During the Norwich Crusade, the English besieged the city from May to August in the year 1383 until French relief forces arrived. In 1561, the Diocese of Ypres elevated the famous St. Martin's Church to a cathedral status. In 1678, it was conquered by Louis XIV of France and then returned to the Spanish crown in 1697. In the year 1713, it was handed over to the Habsburgs, which then became part of the Austrian Netherlands. 
and then captured by the French in 1794, after which, down the road, it became part of Belgium. Another quick version of my dumbed-down history, but as you heard, there's a lot of history to Ypres that backdates a very long time ago. Going to, into the Great War, there were a lot of historical buildings like St. Martin's Cathedral, which its construction started in the year 1230, then finished in 1370, the medieval building Cloth Hall, built in the 13th century, Museum Place, which is now in Flanders Museum, the Ramparts, the famous post office, and more. This was a beautiful historical city going into this war. These buildings had withstood the test of time. That is, until the Great War came along. Ypres and its historical buildings will absolutely get leveled by artillery bombardments. Just look at some of the before and after pictures. It's horrible. St. Martin's Cathedral will literally be turned into gravel. The first Battle of Ypres only lasted about three weeks, and in which time there were dozens of minor battles fought in different sectors of Ypres. The BEF came into this completely outnumbered by the Huns, who were also equipped with modern weapons and devastating artillery power. The men were tired, bruised and battered, hungry. They were physically at their weakest. Trenches were shallow up to this point, and the fighting never ceased day and night. One BEF officer wrote in a historical account that it was a steadily flowing torrent of men equipped with overwhelming and enormous artillery, rolled day after day against a thin-drawn line, a skeleton army. And the Germans had a different historical report. They couldn't believe they were being defied by some skeleton army. They believed they were being held off by some major reserve force, when in fact, it was again the disciplined rifle fire from the Tommies that was holding the Germans off. They shot fast and accurate. To make the First Battle of Ypres clear, as far as the multiple battles being fought over this three-week period, it's broken down into sectors, which are the North Sector, the Center Sector on the Menin Road, the Center Sector south of the Menin Road, the Messina Sector, and the South Sector. History has the major battles during this time period as the Battle of Armentieres from the 13th October to the 2nd of November, the Battle of Messinas from 12th October to the 2nd of November, the Battle of Gelouvelt 1914, which is broken into three, Langemark from 21st to 24th October, Gelouvelt from 29th to the 31st of October, and Nonbalchen on the 11th of November. On the north sector, the BEF 7th Division took up positions about five miles east of the town, with the 3rd Cavalry Division covering their left flank from Zonnebeck to Westrusbeck. Their objective was to head towards Benin and seize the bridge of Lys and halt the German reinforcements being railed in from Lille. An officer describes entering the town of Zonnebeck prior to the battle saying, quote, We billeted in Zonnebeck that night. The town was full of its inhabitants. Shops were open and life going on in a normal manner. Little did the townspeople imagine that 24 hours later, they would be fleeing for their lives with shells bursting all around them. Major Ralph Hamilton, 22nd Brigade, 7th Division, end quote. Both divisions were in desperate need of rest, but rest they never received and hard fighting ensued between the 19th and 21st of October tipping the point of exhaustion they still managed to hold the huns back this is the famous disciplined fighting of the seventh 
However, by the evening of October 21st, things started to look grim for the BEF as two fresh German corps appeared. The Tommies were on their last leg mentally and physically from the lack of sleep, chow, and the non-stop digging and fighting. They were on the verge of breaking down. Zonibek was coming apart and the BEF was in the middle of it. Major Ralph Hamilton again described the situation, saying, quote, One really wondered how anything could live in such an inferno. About 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the Black Maria started. Zonibek has a church standing in a small place with a very high steeple. And evidently, the German gunners, knowing that our headquarters were in the center of the town, were using the church steeple as a target. This bombardment in the streets of the town by high explosive shells was, I think, the most alarming part of the whole experience. Everything in the town shook when one of these shells burst. The whole ground appeared to tremble as in an earthquake, even when the explosion was a hundred yards away." End quote. But things changed in their favor as Sir John French was thrown into the fight, plugging a hole which posed a threat, and they managed to again hold off the Germans. Over to the center sector on the Menin Road, on the 24th of October, Polygon Wood was menaced by successful German attacks until troops from the 2nd BEF Division were ordered up. There, they met the Huns head-on and fought a hand-to-hand -hand battle in which they drove the Germans out. Side note, if you visit Polygon Wood anytime soon, bring a few carrots. There's a donkey on a farm at the entrance and his name is Tommy. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I heard a tour guide call him over by name and he started feeding him. He said, Tommy likes carrots. And I said, why wouldn't he? And the memorial is amazing. It gives you a good view of why they were fighting for the hill there. On the 27th, a message was intercepted. It told of an upcoming massive German assault on the Geluvelt position. The attack opened on the morning of the 29th in dense fog. They attacked from all sides and succeeded in penetrating the BEF line. Both sides suffered heavy casualties. The climax of the battle was reached on the 31st when a heroic counterattack was launched and Geluvelt was recaptured. The Kaiser ordered the final attack on the 11th of November, a grand attack with 12 and a half divisions, including the famous Prussian Guard, with the most overwhelming artillery attack, the biggest yet, and 17,500 men attacking an exhausted 7,800 BEF force. As the onslaught began, the Germans found a way to enfilade between the gaps of the BEF trenches making their way to the woods. The BEF met them hand to hand and with bayonets, they drove the Huns back. The Prussian guard was the pride of Germany. This was supposed to be a supreme attack as they greatly outnumbered their enemy, not only with manpower, but also with artillery. And they failed. Over on the center sector, south of the Menin Road, on the 22nd of October, an intercepted German message warned the BEF of another upcoming attack. The odds against the BEF going into this fight were 6 to 1 in rifles, horses, and artillery. Early morning on the first day of the attack, the Huns obliterated the BEF's cavalry's first and second lifeguards with artillery shells. Horses and men were blown to pieces. Orders were issued that the line must be held at all costs from Holebeck to Gelevelt. On the morning of the 31st, the Germans began another tremendous bombardment. The losses that day were terrible, but still, somehow the BEF managed to repel the attack. A Connaught Ranger described the situation saying, quote, 
The shelling is more deadlier than ever. We have nothing else to do but chew biscuits and bully. Work with the spade when we can to improve cover and wait for death or soldiering on. Sergeant Banks and six of his men were killed together. The old story told to relatives could truthfully be said of him. He never felt it. His head was neatly taken off by one slice. Crouched and pondering the best position, I watched for hours for the shell that is coming to me. Sergeant John McElwain, 2nd Connaught Rangers. End quote. On the 2nd of November, French reinforcements arrived. However, German success against the French on the 6th of November brought the Huns within two miles of Ypres. Another salient was formed on the 11th of November, the day the Great Prussian Guard launched their assault. Over on the Messina sector, on the 21st of October, the 4th and 7th Divisions of the BEF Cavalry Corps were ordered to entrench and hold their positions from the River Duvet to Cominas Canal at all costs. Relentless attacks from the Huns continued day and night, never giving the Tommies a chance to recover. The Germans threw six cavalry divisions supported by four Jaeger and two cyclist battalions at the Brits. But the BEF continued to hold them off. On the 22nd, the Lahore division coming straight from India arrived to support. This is where that firing discipline was really paying off for the BEF. The deadly accuracy from rifles and machine guns couldn't be matched by the Germans at this point. Even artillery. They were firing so much and non-stop. It was reported that 4 out of the 18 artillery guns had recoil springs break. By October 26th, the two BEF cavalry divisions attacked and captured enemy frontline trenches, gaining about a quarter of a mile ground. But the new positions were no good for them, and they retreated back to the previous line. On the morning of October 31st, in the midst of a hazy fog, the Germans unleashed a continual bombardment of heavy guns and trench mortars on the town of Messinas. The position was a salient, a death zone. In terms of war, a salient basically is a stretch of land that can be fired on from multiple angles, basically visible from either side, which turns into a death zone. One BEF regiment lost three quarters of its officers and over a third of its men. Terrible. Terrible losses had been the cost at Messina's, and it's literally became a death trap for artillery and machine gun fire. Heavy fighting broke out in the heart of the village. Houses were on fire, and some soldiers were fighting hand to hand. It was like Pirates of the Caribbean ride on death roids. And in the end, somehow, miraculously, the Tommies again held them off. The Huns gave up and the fighting died out. Over on the South Sector, the BEF 3rd Corps held a 12-mile front in which the 4th Division held 8 of that. The fighting here between the 21st of October to the 2nd of November was part of what is known as the Battle of Armentieres. The British again were told to entrench and to hold on for dear life. With high valiant, they did just that, against forces that outnumbered them 6 to 1 even against German shock troops or Strasstroops. These shock troops were typically better trained than the rest of the infantry, and they would attack opposing forces in the most vulnerable areas. In the town of Laguerre, on the 21st of October, these troops were able to penetrate their way into the village where they enfiladed the battalions of the 12th Infantry Brigade to the south and they outflanked the cavalry to the north. The British counterattacked with combined troops from the 11th to 12th Brigade the 9th Lancers, and backed by divisional artillery on Hill 63. By evening, the ground was recaptured, but not without heavy losses. 
During the next few days, the attack seemed to quiet down, allowing the forces to improve their trench positions. Of course, the artillery and sniper fire never eased up. More failed attacks resumed, and history has those battles labeled as minor attacks. But on the 29th, the Germans struck hard on the Tommies, at a point where one battalion was holding a position that ran 2,000 yards. That's a lot of space for one battalion to hold. The Germans were eventually driven back, but again, not without heavy losses. In one trench, a platoon was found with every single man dead. The whole platoon was wiped off the map in one single battle. That's not just heavy losses, that's a tragedy. I couldn't imagine what was going on through their minds as they were getting down to the last man standing, knowing that this was their time and that nobody from that trench would live to tell the story. That weighs heavy on the heart. The remaining days fighting continued, but attacks were held back. The first battle of Ypres ended on the 11th of November when the Germans realized the British lines were going to be penetrated. In fact, when Falkenhayn called a halt, he had no idea the BEF was just about at the breaking point. The disciplined BEF under dire straits held their ground. A short epilogue was written about this battle, and it reads, quote, A scanty line, an outpost line, but that line, a ring of fire. Impregnable, their flaming guard, who made our shield their pyre. We staked an empire on their hold, our world to win or lose. A few that held, that line held all, we had no right to choose. Flame of spirit was their guard, O grim heroic bluff. God only knew how few they were, he knew they were enough. End quote. So you can see the theme of this battle. The British, just about most of the time, was outnumbered almost six to one, which also the Germans had every modern weapon, including rifles, machine guns, and the more powerful artillery. So how did the British pull this off? Accurate and speed of their rifle fire and discipline. That's all it takes sometimes to just win, especially back then. I would rather take a battalion of highly disciplined shooters over a division of inexperienced men. See, at the point when the Germans were getting those fresh reinforcements up to the line, they weren't getting hardened veterans. They were getting schoolboys straight out of the schoolhouse with very little training, sent in mass to the front. They didn't stand a chance against the old army of England. A German soldier describes it saying, quote, we had imagined that our baptism of fire would be somewhat different. There can be nothing more depressing than the very public failure of an attack launched as though on exercise against an invisible enemy. Unthinking, section after section fanned into the well-directed fire of experienced troops. Every effort had been put into our training, but it was completely inadequate preparation for such a serious assault on battle-hardened long-service colonial soldiers. Private Willie Call, 236th Reserve Infantry Regiment, end quote. Some of the BEF soldiers described it as seeing these mass formations of German soldiers coming at them, hunched up in massive packs, and they would just start unloading on them one by one, just dropping soldier after soldier. This actually became sort of a butchery on the battlefield. And north of Ypres, there's a mass grave, 
It's a final resting place to thousands of these young and inexperienced German soldiers. There's even a sculpture of parents kneeling in grief, created after the war by the mother of one of them. And the losses obviously were just as appalling for the other side. Scotland's 2nd Highland Light Infantry Battalion was taken out of the fight after only 30 soldiers remained of the thousand plus that came to France from the start of the war. During the start of the Battle of Ypres, a Bavarian unit came under heavy fire after attacking the town of Wichat. I'm sure I said that wrong, but what else is new? A captain named Hoffman laid on the ground under, under heavy fire, badly wounded. One of Hoffman's men came out of his protected position to rescue him. He was picked up and carried to safety. In the end, Hoffman did succumb to his wounds. That young man was pinned with the Iron Cross by Kaiser Wilhelm for what he did, and years later, he said he escaped without any harm because he was spared for something bigger in his future. And you're probably saying to yourself, that sounds heroic, and it was, but would you still think it's heroic when I tell you that man was Adolf Hitler? I know it's hard to put the two together, heroism and Hitler. And this isn't political. I no way, shape, or form would I, am I trying to celebrate Adolf Hitler's life? This is a documented historical fact, and it's always in the history books. So I'm repeating it. During the first battle of Ypres, the rain continued. The weather was getting colder. The men often laid outside the trench in the open because the trenches were filled with water. And yet somehow, the attacks never stopped day and night. By November... Both the eastern and western fronts were heating up again as Wilhelm was demanding a victory from Falkenhayn. He wanted to parade around in his best military uniform with people celebrating his military victory. Have I mentioned Wilhelm had just a bit of an ego? Grand Duke Nicholas, not to be confused with his nephew Tsar Nicholas, had two armies moving to Silesia and another towards the Carpathians. Also, Word got to Germany that the Ottoman Empire was entering the war on the side of the Central Powers. Good news for Vienna and Berlin. And around this time, another war started. A difference of opinions war between Falkenhayn and Team Hindenburg-Ludendorff. Each side needed more reinforcements. Falk told Hindenburg to pound sand. They stormed off in anger. The debate was whether the war could be won in the east or the west. The Kaiser replaced Moltke with Falkenhayn as supreme commander, and the last thing he wanted was his generals arguing amongst each other. And both sides weren't wrong. They both needed more reserve troops, fresh troops to support them if they wanted to win this war. Hindenburg were denied the extra manpower to take into Poland. Instead, Falk needed them for the battles in Flanders. Winter time was a frigid one, the kind where you wake up and your coat is frozen stiff. This didn't create a full come to a stop. We'll call it, they pumped the brakes on the fighting in Flanders to strengthen their fighting positions. They knew when the snow came, there wouldn't be much digging. On the Eastern Front, both the Germans and the Russians were doing the same. They settled down to dig into the hard frozen earth to fortify the defenses. General Konrad von Holzendorf launched a year-ending invasion of Serbia. His troops succeeded taking Belgrade but were eventually driven out by King Peter of Serbia. The Austro-Hungarian troops were humiliated, and never again in the years of fighting that lay ahead would they be involved in any major offensives by themselves. As the year came to an end, the attacks never really stopped. 
Back on the Western Front, Joffre kept ordering attacks when an opportunity of breaking through the enemy line presented itself. Nibbling is what he called it. But with every attack meant lives lost, and no ground was gained. The world was becoming numb to the word World War. And the reason it was called World War was because since the start of this in August, there's been naval skirmishes, war in the East, war in the West. Japan jumped in and picked a fight with Germany. There was violence erupting in Africa. The Ottoman Empire was now jumping in, and it will continue to grow. In Belgium, where there had been so much death and destruction, a strange thing happened. A strange act of kindness. Both sides stopped fighting for a short period of time to recognize a day that was holy to both. Christmas. On the morning of Christmas in the frigid weather on the war-torn fields of Flanders, where all that could be seen was trench lines, craters from artillery shells, land torn upside down, German soldiers opposite the British began singing carols and displaying small evergreen trees which resembled Christmas trees. The Tommies at first confused, but eventually joined in the singing. Very cautiously, they both climbed over the trench and began making their way to no man's land to meet each other. With strange smiles of joy, they exchanged food, tobacco, and even played a game of soccer, or football, whichever you like to call it. This was the Christmas truce of 1914, and it lasted about a day. However, when generals found out about this, they made sure nothing like this would ever happen. In fact, any fraternizing with the enemy would for surely get you shot. And I'm going to start wrapping this up right here. I hope you'd enjoy this episode. I've been talking about the year 1914 for, for quite some time now. I'm such a fanboy for the Great War, and the more I read and study about the battles and the personal stories, I'm even more into it now than I have ever been. 1915 will begin next episode, and the war will get even bloodier. And this will be the year when soldiers, human beings, will stoop to their lowest to find other methods of killing the enemy. Folks, I'm going to keep saying this because I'm proud to say it. You fans are the best. Thank you for your continued support for the show. I'm on social media. You know how to find the show. You can always contact me. Please leave the show a review. Until the next time, everyone, take care.